Good morning. Uh, some of you know my family had the uh, opportunity last month to return to Spain, where we had served for eight years as missionary church planters. And we had a, a really incredible time, and we had the extra blessing of having the, the Brazel family join us for part of the trip. So we got to uh, introduce them to our old stomping grounds and uh, give them a glimpse of uh, our life many years ago in a place that really shaped us as a couple and as a family and even as ministers in, in many, many ways. Um, and the Lord gave us a particular privilege of being able to once again uh, make connections with both believers and many non-believers who we had known uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and in many cases, once again, have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with them. Uh, you probably don't know this, but Spain is one of the least reached places in the entire world. Uh, I think 0.01, are evangelical. Um, and I'd like to say over the past 20 years that we've seen this explosive growth of the gospel among Spaniards. But the reality is, is that we haven't. I don't mean there's no growth. There's particular growth among immigrant communities, but Spaniards are still highly resistant to the gospel. In fact, uh, some of you have heard me share about the last 10 years of our ministry in Mexico City and how God allowed us to be part of this church planting movement where men and women were saved and churches were planted and pastors were trained and developed. And it was really this fruitful, obviously fruitful ministry. But what some of you don't realize is that we also spent our first eight years in northern Spain uh, seeing almost no fruit whatsoever, uh, despite pouring our lives into the people there. And as the Lord uh, provided us these new opportunities to again share the gospel with some of our friends and former neighbors in Pamplona, uh, Naomi and I, and I we, we ask ourselves, this happens every few years, does, does God have something for us once again in Spain? And right now, I don't think there is a compelling sense that God wants us to return to Spain at this moment. Uh, but it does make us wonder, if we were to go back to Spain, what would we do differently? How would we approach ministry differently? And the truth is, I don't think we'd approach ministry all that differently. Uh, I, we would probably approach some things in terms of some different strategies and approaches to ministry. We would rethink how we engaged people. But any true gospel ministry, uh, when it comes down to it, they may use different strategies and approaches. You might use a, a coffee shop or street evangelism or a training center. But if it's a truly gospel ministry, then at the core of that ministry and at the core of that strategy is the message of the gospel. In the end, what we are trying to do with all of our great strategies and plans is to communicate the good news of Jesus so that men and women might hear and understand. And if God does that amazing, miraculous work in their hearts, they might believe. So if we were to go back to Spain someday, and maybe we will, our strategies might change a little, but our message needs to remain the same. And so this morning, I'd like to talk with you guys about this message of the gospel. And specifically, I want to share four truths 
about the gospel that should give us hope as believers. And even for some of you who might not be believers, I think there's hope for you as well if you have ears to hear. So please turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. And we're going to explore four truths about the gospel. And they are these. First of all, the gospel has turned upside down the expectations of our world. Secondly, we're going to see that the gospel demonstrates the impotence, the complete and utter weakness of human wisdom. Third, we're going to explore how the gospel offers real hope to all who believe in Christ. And fourth, we're going to see that God wants to use normal people like you and me to make his gospel power known. When we don't see the fruit of our labor in our lives as as missionaries, when we don't see gospel movements happening, we're tempted to explore other things. Maybe we become a social movement. Maybe we just talk about alleviating poverty. Maybe we just talk about religion or morality or values. But if we do that, we will actually rob the cross of its power. We'll have nothing meaningful worth giving, nothing that can actually save. So that's why when we see fruit and when we don't see fruit, we commit ourselves day after day to the same message because it is the only thing we have to offer, because it's the only thing worth offering, because it's the only thing that can save. Let me read our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and I'll read the rest of it a little bit later. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let me pray. Father, may your Holy Spirit work through your word this morning to help us understand and embrace 
the power of the cross. May we enjoy its beauty, its redemption, and its hope for all who will believe. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in this text is that the gospel has turned upside down the expectations of our world. We see that in verse 18 where Paul says, For the word of the cross, the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, our world tends to think of power in terms of political or social or military or economic might. When we think power, we think of those things. And so the world seeks to save itself, to make things right, to fix its problems through these kinds of powers. But the gospel tells us that the power to truly save is only found in the message of the cross of Christ. And in the recognition of our own utter and complete weakness and inability to save ourselves. And for that reason, there's, there's really two responses to this word of the cross, to this gospel message. And they're very different. Some look at this message of the cross, the gospel, and they say that it is folly, according to verse 18. That word folly literally means foolishness. This is foolishness, but not just foolishness like a little child acts foolish sometimes. It's foolish like this is crazy. Like you guys are insane. In fact, I love that the uh, Spanish translation we use in Mexico, it actually translates this word as insanity, locura. Some look at the message of the cross and they say, that's crazy. That's not power, that's weakness. That's not wisdom, that is foolishness. How do you expect a Jewish man who was crucified 2,000 years ago to solve our world's problems? What in the world does a crucified, dead Jesus have to do with me. It's interesting, Naomi and I had the opportunity to uh, become friends with a Muslim exchange student at ESU this last semester. And we had the unique privilege of sharing with her the gospel story. She'd never heard it before. And we got to the place of Jesus' death. Jesus dying for sinners. And she stopped us and she said, hold on a second. How do you pray to Jesus if he's dead? That's what she said. How do you pray to Jesus if he's dead? And that is a really good question. And that gave us the unique privilege of sharing with this woman for the first time in her life, hearing that Jesus is not dead. That the story didn't end there. 
that Jesus actually rose from the dead and defeated death and sin. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. The gospel doesn't make sense for those who don't believe in the resurrection, in the message of the cross. It's foolishness. It's craziness. That's the response of those who, according to verse 18, are perishing. Those who are on the road to death. Those who have been blinded and enslaved by this fallen world system and by their own sinful hearts. That's one response to the word of the cross, the gospel message. But there is a second possible response that's very, very different. Let me read this verse again. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, insanity to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For those who are perishing, it's insanity. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it's a power that we have experienced personally through the forgiveness of sin and through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, day after day after day. Now, it's interesting here that in verse 18, Paul does not make a contrast between those who believe and those who do not believe. He contrasts those who are being saved and those who are perishing. It's an interesting little detail. And I think he does that because this is not just an intellectual issue, a something to debate in our universities or on Instagram or Twitter. It's not just a philosophical question or a psychological question. We are talking about life and death, about the eternal destiny of every man, woman, and child in the world. Those that deny the power of the gospel will have to face the consequences of their decision. And that means death and divine justice. That's why they are perishing. However, for those who believe the gospel is the power of God to save us, to reconcile us to Him, to give us new life both now and forever. So, so the gospel is not just an intellectual debate. It instead involves the eternal destinies of real people, of your neighbors and co-workers and family members and children. That's why in our in our postmodern world, where we celebrate tolerance and respect, right? It's all about tolerance and respect. When our postmodern world tells us, in the name of tolerance and respect, to keep our religion to ourselves, to just be quiet. You want to be a Christian, that's fine, but keep it between yourself and God. When they tell us to do that, what they're really telling us to do is to say nothing as our world collapses in despair. 
It's really telling us to let our neighbors die without hope. It says, you might have the solution to the world's problems, but keep it to yourself. Let us all die in peace. What's really telling us to do is to protect this current world system. To just maintain the status quo. That system that has enslaved each and every one of us since Adam and Eve to this very day. So at, at first glance, postmodern tolerance sounds nice enough. Live and let live. But you just have to scratch a little bit to look beyond the facade. And what you'll really find is a cruel, merciless worldview that would prefer death over disagreement, conformity over true heart conversion and life, a worldview that would prefer ignorance over salvation. That's not kindness. That is cruelty. But divine love, Christian love, it goes way beyond tolerance. It's not less than tolerance. It is way more than tolerance. Divine love risks everything for the well-being of the other. Reputation, friendship, the approval of others. Just like Jesus himself demonstrated on the cross, where the just one voluntarily died for the unjust ones in order to bring them, in order to bring us to God in peace. Where God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So for those who don't believe this gospel, it's insanity. It's foolishness. And, and I, I have some sympathy towards them because the reality is that they have been blinded by the devil. And they have been blinded and deceived by the lies of our world system. They are victims of a world filled with lies. But they're not just victims. They're also responsible for their decisions. Because many would prefer to remain in the darkness instead of coming into the light. Many oppose the gospel because the gospel goes against their deepest values. And perhaps the most sacred value of our fallen world, its most fundamental conviction, is the lie of autonomy, that I am in control, that I can do it, that I'm capable, I'm sufficient, that I am like God. Behind every human philosophy or psychology or theology is essentially the conviction that we are capable of solving our own problems that we do not have to rely 100% on God 
that despite all the evil that we have lived and committed, that somehow we're still capable of making things right. As human beings, we desperately want to hold on to something of merit, some independence, some autonomy. Or to put it in the words of my favorite Catholic theologian, Nacho Libre, we all want a little taste of the glory. But the gospel of Jesus takes it all away. It destroys it all. It humiliates us all. Because the gospel says that we are not capable. We are not sufficient. We cannot do it. But God can. And He has. And He will. So for those who are perishing, this message is foolishness. But for those who have rejected this lie of human autonomy and self-sufficiency, the gospel power is the power of God to save and to redeem and to reconcile people like you and me. Because for those who believe in this word of the cross, it's right there in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our humiliation, It's right there in the midst of our desperation, of our total dependence, that we find a God who is willing to die for us and to save us, both from ourselves and from His justice. So it's foolishness, folly for those who are perishing. But it is the power of God for those who believe. The world seeks after human power and human wisdom. But what God offers us is a crucified man. In that sense, the gospel has turned upside down the expectations of our world. Secondly, in verses 19 through 21, we're going to see that the gospel demonstrates the impotence of human wisdom. Let me read it again. Verses 19 through 21 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The gospel demonstrates the impotence, the utter weakness of human wisdom. The wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent has never been able to solve humanity's fundamental problem. And that is a problem of sin, of injustice, of a broken relationship, with our Creator. They haven't offered us any hope. They can't do it. And Paul demonstrates this by citing the prophet Isaiah in verse 19. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 29, 14. 
says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, there's a whole big context behind this quote in Isaiah. It extends beyond into Isaiah 36 and 37. But to summarize it, this kind of historical background, I think what's happening is the nation of Judah is at the point of being destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. Okay? That's what's happening in Isaiah. They're about to be destroyed. And many of the wise and intelligent among the Jews, they were seeking after human solutions instead of seeking after the Lord, their God. They talked as if they had faith, but what they really wanted was for Egypt to come along and save them. To align themselves with other strong nations who could protect them because they didn't believe that their God could do it. They didn't believe their God was sufficient to save them. In a sense, we act in a pretty similar way ourselves. When we talk about the sufficiency and the power of the gospel, but then we send our members to secular psychologists to deal with their deepest spiritual issues. And we seek social change primarily through political alliances. And that's for you on the right and on the left. We say that we believe in the power of the gospel, but how we use our time and our energy demonstrates that maybe we really don't. Maybe if God were to expose how we really used our time and our energy, we'd be a little embarrassed. So what we find in Isaiah, after this quote, specifically in chapters 36 through 37, we find Jerusalem surrounded by the Assyrian army. This might have been one of the greatest armies of its age. There was no way for the Jews to win. But the Lord had made a promise just a few chapters before that he would destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning he would thwart. This is a promise for then. It was also a future promise. But it was a promise. And God was going to show himself faithful. So whereas the shrewd ones of Israel, of Judah, sought after political alliances, Hezekiah, in desperation, he called out to God. And God said, yeah, I'll do that. So with no one's help, God acted. And the next morning, Jerusalem awoke. And what did they find? 185,000 Assyrian soldiers dead. Jerusalem saved. And not a drop of human effort expended. I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying just like God saved Judah from the Assyrians by his mighty hand alone, so also there would be a future day, which is now a present day, in which God would save us from our sin through the power of the cross without any human effort, so that he alone might receive the glory. That's why he says in verse 20, where is 
the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? That's to say, where are the most powerful among you? Where are the wise ones of your age? Where are the religious leaders? Where are the politicians and psychologists and priests and philosophers and billionaire businessmen? Where is Black Lives Matters? Where is your Republican Party? Where is the American military? Where is the United Nations? Where is Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Ben Shapiro? Stand up! (laughs) What have any of them done to defeat sin? All the political might, all the military might, all the intellectual might of our age has not saved anyone from their sin. It can't do it. All the universities of our world cannot give us enough education to free us from our slavery to sin. They cannot give us forgiveness. That is something that God alone can do. That's something that God alone has done. And he has done it through the cross. And only through the cross. So Paul says in verse 20, he goes on to say, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's made it foolish. Looks powerful, looks wise. Can't do anything that really matters. But I can. So the gospel demonstrates the impotence of human wisdom. But it doesn't just demonstrate the impotence of human wisdom in general. It also shows the powerlessness of any human effort. And that's really the main point. Human effort is powerless in the face of evil. He could have just as easily said, Where is Joshua Smith? Where is Pastor Dave? Where is Heather Brazel? Dixon? Caden? Gabe? Where are they? Where is Hills Bible Church? Because None of us have the power to save anybody. We don't either. Flint Hills Bible Church cannot save anybody. I cannot save anybody. All that we can do is point people to Jesus because he can save. That's our job. Point people to Jesus. And that means that if, if, if you're visiting Flint Hills Bible Church, you've been here for a while, and you found something of peace and love and purpose and acceptance, that is great. The church should provide those sorts of things. But if you leave here without having experienced the power of the cross, without having embraced the glory of God in Christ, if you do not give your life to the God who loves you 
and who offered himself for you on the cross, then it's been a waste of time. Because we are not the salvation of the world. Jesus is the salvation of the world. He is our Lord. He is our hope. He is the power and wisdom of God. And that's why we proclaim Christ. We proclaim him alone. It's through the preaching of this message, the foolishness, you might say, of this message, that God wants to save people like you and me. And that's always been his plan, so that he alone might receive the glory, and in his glory we might find salvation. That's why he says in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. So the gospel has turned upside down the expectations of our world. The gospel demonstrates the impotence of human wisdom. And then in verses 22 through 24, we'll see that the gospel offers real hope to all who will believe. It says in verse 22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus commands his people to make his gospel known to everyone, to make disciples of all peoples. So my question is, if, if this gospel is so powerful, why do so many people not believe? If it's so powerful, why do people not believe? In verse Verses 22 and 23, Paul gives us two reasons. One, he says, for Jews demand signs. And two, because Greeks seek wisdom. He goes on to say in 23, but we preach Christ crucified, and that is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now, he says Jews and Gentiles, but he's he's really talking about the whole world. He's talking about all of us. He's saying that people don't believe. One of the reasons is because they demand a sign. They want to see miracles, and they won't believe until they do. Many people, believers and non-believers, seek after miraculous signs, and they'll say, I will believe or I will obey if... God does whatever. And what kind of signs do they want to see? They want to see miraculous healings. Maybe have a a dream from the Lord. They talk with an angel. Have a, a vision of the future. Have a supernatural experience with God. This is the thing. God actually can do all of those things. But he does not have to do any of those things. You do not need any of those things. The cross of Jesus is sufficient. 
Do you want a sign? This is the sign. 2,000 years ago, God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus. And he lived a perfect life as a man. A life of justice and faith. The sort of life that we have failed to live. And then he willingly died on the cross on our behalf. Paying the price for our sins even though he was sinless. And then he destroyed the power of sin and death when physically and historically he rose from the dead. 2,000 years ago, a dead man rose from the dead. His name was Jesus. And then he sent his spirit to give life to all those who will believe in him as Lord and King. That's your sign. And it is enough. He's done enough to save you. He's done enough to demand your obedience. He's done enough to woo you to him in love. So believe it. Embrace it. Obey his gospel now. You don't need more signs. What you have is enough. I love those sweet times when I I feel the presence of the Lord. That subjective sense of nearness and intimacy. But I don't need that to follow Jesus. He's given me enough. But there are others, what they seek after is wisdom. More studies, more ideas, more books, more knowledge, more spirituality, more psychology, more education. People who like a philosopher Jesus, but they don't really like a Messiah Jesus, a King Jesus, a Savior Jesus. The sort of people that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3.7, who are always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. More books more podcasts, no salvation. But we as God's people, we don't offer miraculous signs. We don't offer more human wisdom. According to verses 23 and 24, it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God has not left us without hope. There is true hope for all who will believe. Both for the Jew and the Gentile. For all who have been graciously called to God. In undeserved favor. He offers salvation. Whether you're an American or a Mexican, whether you're a woman or a man, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, whether you have a college degree or an elementary school diploma, God offers you hope, real hope. And you need to know that if what you want is power or wisdom, you will never find it in this world system. 
You'll never find it in some human philosophy because it is only found, truly found, in a person. I know this is craziness, right? It's foolishness. But power and wisdom are found in a person. They're found in the person of Jesus. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, says in verse 24. So if, if you haven't believed this message, then do it. Trust in this Jesus, this message of the cross. He died for sinners like you, and we're all lost without him. We can all find salvation in him. He's that good, that kind, that powerful. For those of you who do know Jesus, who have believed, I would encourage you to stop relying on human powers and human wisdom. It is impotent. Why would you embrace weakness when you have power? And that means that I would encourage you to not soften the gospel message because it is the power of God to save. I'd also encourage you not to politicize the gospel message as if it were just one part of a party's political platform. I'd encourage you not to militarize the gospel because we can't force anybody to believe. Don't commercialize it, make money out of it. Don't psychologize it as if it only exists to make us feel better. Embrace the gospel. Find your hope in Jesus. Be transformed by Jesus. And for the love of God, proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And do it with courage, without shame, challenging the powers of our world with the foolishness of the cross. Not with arrogance, as some of you do on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Reddit. We try to own the libs, try to defeat those who oppose. Not like that. Do it with mercy and love, with gentleness and patience, treating others like Christ has treated you. He has been patient with you. He has been patient with me. Be patient with others as you boldly proclaim the word of the cross. And that leads us to our fourth and final point, and will be a brief one. Don't worry. God wants to use normal people like you to make known his gospel power. It's going to be brief because I hadn't planned on preaching this. This really requires a whole other message. But I only get one shot today, so I felt like I'd be missing something important if I didn't say this. Look who God wants to use to make this gospel known in verses 26 through 31. I'm just going to read it. I won't say much. For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There aren't a lot of Bidens or Bushes or Trumps in this room, right? Is Elon Musk in the audience? My family has really enjoyed living in Emporia the last year. But I will tell you something that will probably offend a few of you. I hope not, but it might. Many Emporians have a little bit of a complex. Small town in a flyover state. And so it's easy to be tempted to leaders and politicians who say, hey, you matter to us. I want you to know you matter to God. God wants to save people like you and me. I'm from Bakersfield, California. That's like Nazareth, okay? I'm from California. It's literally called the armpit of California. God wanted to use someone from the armpit of California to make himself known. In this room, I, and we, have, we have teachers, we have factory workers, we have farmers. Dolly Madison and Simmons. Those are honorable things, honorable occupations, but they won't make you famous. They probably won't put you on TV. And God chose in his grace to save you. Exactly where you are, in your job, in your family situation, in your economic situation, because he wants to make clear that he did it. And he wants to take your foolishness that a factory worker at Dolly Madison can proclaim a message capable of saving every man, woman, and child in the world. Something that Elon Musk cannot do, whether or not he gets to Mars. See how powerful that is? Don't be ashamed of being nothing in the eyes of the world. Be thankful that God chose the nothing to bring salvation and goodness, and then through you to make his everything known to the world. Who cares if you're not New York City or Kansas City or Los Angeles or Paris? You are lights in a broken world. You speak truth to power because you have known the power of Jesus. Don't be embarrassed by that. Embrace it. Maybe God wants to use the believers in Emporia, Kansas to bring his saving knowledge to the cities, to everywhere else. Maybe God wants to use you. Not somebody else, not Pastor Dave, you. Not through your great argumentation, not through your keyboard and great logic and debater abilities. He wants to use you as you kindly and graciously and genuinely point people to Jesus. And you point people to Jesus not to win, but because you love him. And because you love them. It's foolishness. Why do we strive after our enemies? Why do we even care? It's foolishness. But not to God. We care because God cares. And we love because he first loved us. Let me pray. Father, may your foolishness 
bring transformative power to our lives and to our city and to our world. And may you use normal people like us, nothing special, to make known how special you are. In Jesus' name, amen.